0: Good morning, my name is Marshall and uh, I will be preaching on the passage that Walter just read for us and uh, it's good to be with you, good to see your faces, good to have great weather outside, it's especially good for uh, Jung and Margaret today, Uh, in many ways Jung uh, you're very much on my mind as as I preach this sermon today as you kind of begin your official public life as a Christian uh, which is what baptism commemorates. Uh, I, um, there is this exciting news. I'll tell you more about the congregational meeting, and they'll, they'll be on stage in a couple of weeks, so May 21st. But I do want to welcome Ethan and London Marshall. Come on, do the volleyball. Stand up. You can, London, you don't have to. Ethan, you do. Uh, so... Ethan is our new high school director. He started work on uh, Monday, and so we are so excited. We've been praying and working and trying to get uh, someone as gifted as he uh, here for two years, and so we're so thankful uh, that he is here. It's great that he's here May 1st, which means he's got, you know, several, six, seven weeks before everybody disappears for the summer to get to know our youth and to know our, our staff and all that, so we're so excited. Uh, he'll be on the stage in a couple weeks, so you'll get to know him a little bit, um, a little bit better. Um, I like to sometimes listen to one of my favorite preachers in Chicago is Charlie Dates at Progressive Baptist Church. I was listening to him a little bit this morning, a great preacher. And he, uh, one thing he does really well is he gets the church to help him preach. He's like, I, I, need, I got a church here today, and uh, I need the church to be with me today. I'm a little bit tired this morning. So let's pray before we look at uh, these uh, passages. God, on an exciting day when many have named your name and joined with your people have been marked by the waters of baptism, professing faith, at least one of them, two of them for the first time. Uh, We are thankful, God, for this church that you have given us one another. And as we look now to one of the saints before, to Joseph, who was uh, our brother in Christ, uh, we pray that we would learn from his story, that we would learn from you. So no matter what the circumstances we bring today, would you be with us in the teaching and the preaching of your word. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. Amen. A sermon is an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing in a lot of ways. I think about it a lot. It's my craft. You probably don't think about sermons. You listen to them once a week. But a sermon is an interesting mix of... Of preaching which is kind of exhortation getting you to feel something so that you might do something it's interesting of of preaching and also of of teaching and and, you know the best preachers are those who are most ably uh, able to kind of combine the preaching and the teaching aspects of what is uh, preaching Uh, because there's certainly teaching involved as I preach as I exhort Uh, because there's things that are entering your mind even as you hear me speak there's words there's ideas But preaching is ultimately, though, about what, it's about the heart. Uh, Preaching is ultimately about what you want in causing us to love Christ and his gospel. Um, Because even as I use words, which is to say ideas, ultimately what I'm aiming at, uh, I'm aiming at our hearts, your heart and mine. One of my favorite definitions, this is a little bit of a side, but this is kind of fun, one of my favorite definitions of preaching uh, that kind of gets at what I'm talking about. David Martin Lloyd-Jones in the last century, he said, Uh, preaching is theology come through a man on fire. Preaching is theology come through a man on fire. And I don't know if I'm on fire, but I do love that definition of what preaching is uh, at its best. So today I want to use a little bit of illustration to, to demonstrate, because today I'm going to do a little bit more teaching. And when I think about preaching, one metaphor I think of is the relationship of a plumbing system to itself. To deliver water in your house, there has to be a piping system. There has to be pipes that carry the water to the different rooms in your house. And teaching the teaching part of a sermon or any type of Christian education that is providing the pipes, the pipes, so that the water can flow. And today, what I'm going to do today, it's um, it's a little more teaching. It is I'm laying pipe, as it were. I am laying pipe, and specifically, I'm laying one doctrine: the doctrine of God's providence, which we will talk about. And I want to suggest to you that this doctrine is immensely practical, it is immensely useful, it is essential for following God, for following Jesus in the Christian life. If you want the water to flow, this piece of hardware, this pipe has to be in uh, your thinking. Because when the trials come, and I was thinking about you, John, when the trials come, when life gets hard, and it may be hard for many of you right now, you need this doctrine to get to get through, okay? Uh, so also I'll say this, uh, for some of you this sermon might be immediately relevant, but for all of us, bookmark this sermon. Yeah, you know, most sermons are designed for the week of, like you can't, I can't even remember what I preached on last week, I didn't preach last week, uh, maybe that's why I can't remember it, but two weeks got, um, uh, the, so, sermons are designed for the immediate, for the right now, for this week. Well this sermon is for that, but it is also for you to bookmark, put this in the back of your mind, especially if your life is pretty good right now. Because you will need this sermon, this doctrine, one day. It is the doctrine of providence. And I actually want to read from the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 27 and 28. First of all, a catechism is a teaching device uh, that the church has used, a question and answer to help people learn the Christian faith. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism was produced in 1563 in Germany. Uh, It is considered the most ecumenical, the most widely used, and the warmly praised of the Reformed Catechisms. And I love what it says about providence. I realize providence is a big word, so I thought it would be good to have actually printed definitions of providence for you. So question and answer 27 and 28, I'll read them for us. But let these words soak in. What do you understand by the providence of God? Question 27. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question 28, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand That without his will, they cannot so much as move. Those are good words. Well, we have been in a study these last weeks since Easter on the life of Joseph. The last 13 chapters in the book of Genesis. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. We are studying the last section, the section on Joseph. And if Joseph is anything, Joseph is a story of God's providence illustrated. So, what I want to look at this morning is providence and temptation, providence and suffering, and providence and a pattern. Temptation, suffering, and a pattern. First, temptation. Now, uh, three weeks ago, when we first looked at Joseph, two weeks ago, we looked at Judah and Tamar. Last week, Donnie St. Germain was here with us. But three weeks ago, when we were last with Joseph, he had been disowned by his brothers. Now, they hated him because he was a bit of a tattletale, and he was a bit arrogant, and he was favored by their father, but they hated him, and they had a disproportionate response to him. What do they do? They sell, you know, you've got an arrogant brother, what do you do? You sell him to slave traders? I don't think so. That's what they did, though, Okay. <laughs> And then they tell his dad, their dad, that he is dead. Okay, So he is a slave in Egypt when we meet him here. He's been sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. Verse 1, we pick up the action, chapter 39. The slave traders have sold Joseph to a man named Potiphar. He is a nobleman. It's called the chief of the guard, the captain of the guard in Egypt. Verse 2. Uh, we find out that Potiphar's house is flourishing because of joseph 's servant leadership. Joseph 's excellence and hard work causes Potiphar's house to be well, and so Potiphar promotes Joseph over all the other servants. What that means is that he's around during the daytime when Potiphar is off at work, at the office. And Mrs. Potiphar, she notices. Uh, we know from verse 6 that Joseph is a good-looking dude. This shouldn't surprise us. The scriptures testify that his great-grandmother, his grandmother, and his mom were all very attractive. And so he is attractive. Well, he gets the attention of Mrs. Potiphar. In the Hebrew, it's just two words, but it's best translated with three words. He, she says to him, lie with me. I mean, this is not like subtle. This is lie with me. There is a violence in her language. There is certainly an objectification of Joseph. But Joseph resists. He resists her. This is his master's wife, and he resists her entrees, right? Verse 8 and 9, he gives his answer. We'll look at those in a moment. But as Joseph resists... Mrs. Potiphar, she persists. Verse 10, look with me. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her. And he kept out of her way as much as possible. I mean, this is, this is real housewives of Cairo. And uh, she is bored and she is pining for the pool boy, okay? But then one day, she gets more aggressive. She thinks she can take what is hers. And so verse 11, One day, however, no one else is around, when he came in to do his work, she came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. Now, a little context. I mentioned this a moment ago. Two weeks ago, we preached on Joseph, uh, Joseph's brother Judah in Genesis 38. And in Genesis 38, what had happened is Judah... Walks down the road, he's in grief, he feels bad, so he wants to feel better. He sees a prostitute, or he thinks it's a prostitute on the side of the road, he hires and sleeps with a prostitute, which leads to all kinds of results. That's two weeks ago. There's a clear, that's right before this story. There's a clear contrast being between Judah and his brother Joseph. Joseph resists temptation, Judah gives in to temptation. Why is Joseph able to resist the temptation, especially persistent temptation? This woman continually saying to him, Lie with me. Let me read verses 8 and 9. But Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master is no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not, he is not greater than his, in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now understand this. Joseph resists temptation... Because he realizes that sin and wickedness is not about some abstract thing. It is about a relationship. Sin is about what you love. It's not something out there. It is about a sin against Potiphar and it's a sin against God. It's a relational sin. In verse 8, he doesn't want to violate the trust of Potiphar. But verse 9, he says, I cannot sin against God. And when he says, how can I not sin against God? He's saying, I love God. I am in a relationship with God and I desire to please God. Which is to say, and this is the only way to resist sin long term, the only way that Joseph did not fall into temptation is because he loved God and desired to please him more than he wanted to experience pleasure. More than he wanted to avoid the consequences that are about to come upon him. Friends, the only thing in the long run that will keep you from giving into temptation, the only thing, is loving God, and loving God more than loving pleasure, and loving God more than avoiding pain. Have you ever had someone with power tell you to do something wrong, or to deny a belief or else you will face consequences. Perhaps this is an employer. Perhaps this is a neighborhood friend. Perhaps this is someone at school in the lunchroom. Perhaps this is someone in a club that you're in telling you, asking you to do something that you know is against God's will. And they have power. Maybe it's social power. Maybe it's economic power. But they have power. And in that moment, and especially at that moment if it persists, your morals, your resolve, your character, even having accountability, It won't be enough. The only thing that stands strong enough is your love. The only thing that keeps Joseph is he loves God more than anything else. What do you love? Now, in Joseph's case, his love must be strong. Because in his case, his resistance of temptation results in further suffering. Let's look at his suffering. Verse 12 and following. Mrs. Potiphar assaults him, assaults Joseph. Again, Joseph resists and he flees. Verses 13 and 14, as he runs off, she grabs his coat and then she calls out to others in the house. She begins to frame him. Verse 16, she tells her husband he is enraged. And in verse 20, for his integrity, Joseph is sent to prison. Now, I want us to feel this. We know from Genesis 37 that Joseph was 17 years old when we meet him. We know that he will get out of prison from chapter 45 when he was 30 years old, which is to say from the age of 17 to 30, he was either enslaved or imprisoned in a foreign land abandoned by his family. How did you spend your 20s? And I speak to you especially like, how how are you thinking about your 20s students as you enter them? High school students, Northwestern students. This man spent his 20s in prison. And what had he done to deserve this? I mean, he was a little bit arrogant, yes. But besides that, he was basically innocent. And to put a point on it, it's actually Joseph's faithfulness to God. It's Joseph's obedience that led directly to his circumstances getting worse. Joseph is suffering for believing and obeying God. Now, if you know the end of the story, and some of you do know the end of the story, the end of the story is that Joseph is exalted. He is made a ruler in Egypt, In some level, socially and politically, he saves that corner of the world, including his family. We know the end of the story. He did not know the end of the story, Right? We know that the slamming of the prison door behind him leads to the opening of the palace door before him. Joseph does not know that. And for 13 years, where were you in 2010, 13 years ago? He does not know that this is happening. And friends, you need to know this, and it's it's self-evident, but believing and obeying God, it's becoming more and more real that we will be persecuted. We will suffer for our faith. This happens at school and work with neighbors In friendships, I am just old enough to remember, just barely, when Christianity was encouraged in the broader culture. Something switched sometime in my young years, where Christianity went from being encouraged as something that built character to something that was tolerated. Well, today it's no longer toleration. Today, be a follower of Jesus is considered—you are considered—I am considered dangerous and a threat to other people. Dangerous and a threat. Some of you would know and recognize the name if you're in the financial world, Bob Dahl. He was with Naveen for many years. Before he was with Naveen, he was the chief equity strategist at BlackRock. And he was very public about his Christian faith, Bob Dahl, uh, chief equity strategist at BlackRock. And um, he, was pu- he was public about his faith in the sense that he would talk about his faith, he would speak at Christian commencements. And this, you know, he's very public about his Christian faith. And you, if you remember him, he's, he used to be on CNBC a fair bit. Well, in 2012, he was forced to resign from BlackRock. Now, in his telling, and I realize there are multiple sides to a story, and I don't know all of them. But in Bob Dahl's telling, I watched him say this. The folks at BlackRock found five, four videos of him sharing his faith in a public setting... Christian college, whatever, four videos. And they came to him and they said, We don't do that here. You will resign. It's 2012. Friends, suffering for Jesus, suffering for believing and following Jesus is escalating. It just is. And let me hear you need to hear me say, I don't think that's all of a bad thing. I don't think it's all a bad thing. First of all, Jesus said it would happen. But there's also this: the church is often the strongest when she is persecuted, which is why, incidentally, the church is growing immensely fast in places like Iran and China where it is persecuted. It is not all bad. Jesus predicted. He said it would happen. It happened to him. It's going to happen to us. And it is escalating. And the question, though, is how will you handle it when suffering results from your choice to follow Jesus, to believe, to obey? Let's look at Joseph. How does he handle those years? I love this about him. Joseph, in those 13 years, he does not despair And he does not grow cynical. I can't put all... I'm not going to spend the whole time here. But first of all, in, in chapter 39, verse 4, and in chapter 39, verse 22, he basically works hard so that first Potiphar's house and then that the prison system works better. He is an excellent employee. He works hard. He's not feeling sorry for himself. And this I didn't print out, but also when he gets into the prison... He pays attention to the people in his care. When the cupbearer and the baker, they're thrown down from, uh, from Pharaoh. They, they've had a bad day at work, basically. He comes and how, he said, your face is downcast. And he asks them about them. He's not so self-focused and consumed in his own suffering that he can't see other people. And then, of course, at the end of his life, after everything, he says to his brothers who have done him so much harm, he says, you intended this for harm, but all that has happened, God intended for good. How does this happen? How does Joseph not grow bitter, suffering all those years, no relief in sight? How does it happen? How is he not bitter? Well, there is a refrain through this passage. Maybe you picked it up as Walter read it. Because four different times, four different times in chapter 39, it says God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. And Joseph knew that God was with him. And it's because he knew that he could endure this and not give in to despair and to cynicism. The way the New Testament says this in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writing, he says this in Romans 5 beginning in verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. To put in our terms today, Joseph believed that God was with him. He believed in providence. The pipe was laid in his life. And so that Joseph knew that behind a frowning providence, God hid a smiling, loving face. That though Joseph did not know the way, he did not know the way forward. He did know the guide, God, whom he trusted. You see, friends, suffering is either a doorway to resentment... Or to gratitude. To cynicism or to hope. And for Joseph, his suffering did not lead him to cynicism and away from God. His suffering drew him into the deep places with God. Bob in commenting on his fire, he said, I would not do it again, but I wouldn't trade that year for anything. In this sense, suffering is a bit like phosphorescence. Do you know what phosphorus, that white phosphorus, that looks rather unordinary in light, but when it goes into the dark... What does phosphorus do? What does white phosphorus do? It shines. It glows. There is and can be an intense joy mingled with deep suffering. A deep knowing that God is with me. Several years ago, a friend of mine, uh, his wife left him for another man. Totally out of left field. Uh, And he would say that during that year... He experienced a deepness of communion with God in the midst of terrible tears and grief and sadness. The circumstances were abominable. How am I going to care for myself? What am I going to do with my sons? But in the midst of it all, God was with my friend in new and deep ways. Or as as my friend who, who lost his daughter a month and a half ago said, our hearts are broken, but our hearts are so empty and yet so So full. You friends, if you are convinced that God is with you, that providence is real, suffering can refine, produces hope and intimacy. But more important, more importantly, suffering does something and it points to a pattern. The last thing I want us to see is the pattern of providence in the story of Joseph. Because there's a pattern in Joseph's life and it's actually in all of our lives as well. And here's the pattern. There's some sort of human exaltation then there's, a, there's some sort of humiliation, and then there's an exaltation, okay? Look with it through the life of Joseph. Joseph in Genesis 37, he dreams he would be great, but then he is sold into slavery. He is exalted in Pharaoh's house, then he is sent to prison. He is exalted in prison, and then he is forgotten in prison. And then finally he is raised up to be a prince in Egypt. You see, Joseph is to be emulated for the way he handles temptation and suffering. But much more importantly, Joseph is a signpost pointing us forward to the Messiah and all who are united with him. You see, God's plan for us is not ease and comfort. God's plan for us is death and resurrection. That is what baptism is about. The reason, as Chris explained it, that baptism matters, it's a picture of our death. And our resurrection, that is the Christian pattern. Death to self, new life in Christ. Death to self, new life in Christ. It is the pattern of the Christian life. This is why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 can say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I might attain the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul knows and Joseph seems to endure it. There is no resurrection without crucifixion. There is no life without death. And the reason is straightforward. This is the pattern of our Savior. It is the pattern of Jesus. And Joseph's life is a signpost pointing forward to Jesus who was crucified and raised. Who was, he was killed and raised to new life and who says anyone who must come after me must take up their cross, must die to themselves." That is the pattern of Jesus. Because more than learning how to resist temptation, more than learning how to endure suffering, Joseph's life is a signpost that points us to Christ. That's why baptism is such a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Because there is a death and there is a life in baptism. A pattern of death and resurrection, humiliation, exaltation, confession of sin, then assurance of pardon. So this morning, if you are not in the midst of suffering, as I said at the beginning, bookmark this, bookmark this sermon. Right, I, this is a pipe-laying sermon, okay? Bookmark this because you will need this sermon one day, that God is with you even in the darkest of times. But if you are this morning in the pit of suffering, maybe it's sickness, maybe it's a wayward child, maybe it is a difficult marriage. God is with you in the pit, and I say that with great trepidation and timidness. Not timidness, but trepidation. Because hear these words from a Romans 8. Romans 8 is in many ways the great articulation of providence in the New Testament. We always quote the first part of Romans eight twenty eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for, the, for good. For those who are called according to us, but God works all things together for good. But then we stop and we don't go on to read. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with us graciously give us all things? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. He goes on to say, for I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that is providence. That is not stoicism. That is God's providence. So, to revisit my plumbing metaphor in conclusion, once the pipe of providence is laid in your house, once that pipe is securely laid, the water can begin to flow, knowing that God is with you in all things. Because slowly and surely, though, you start to view your life through the love of God and the gospel, not through your circumstances. It is so tempting and easy for us to view God's love through our circumstances. What is happening to me, and through what is happening to me, I think about the gospel and God's love. But the more that this pipe is laid, you start to view all of your circumstances, even your suffering, through the love of God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, it is good news, the providence of God. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for stories like Joseph. We wouldn't wish it on our our worst enemy. But we thank you for his hope in the midst of affliction. We thank you that he knew humiliation, that he might know exaltation. But more than that, Lord, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who gave himself that we might have life, even life eternal.